you stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there Yahweh has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we need to hear from you. As our church makes a significant decision, we need your word guiding us. So help us to hear you well, to be listening, to be obedient, to trust you. Pray that you'd shape the direction we're going by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, many of you know that next Sunday, our church will be voting on whether to launch a capital campaign to fund church plants, ministry training, facility improvements, and most notably, the purchase of land in South Georgetown, for a future church build. It's a $7.7 million campaign, and we've called it the 2020 Vision. And so today, I'm preaching a sermon that's been titled 2020 Vision. And I bet some of you are thinking, what is the pastor going to say on a sermon like that? First of all, let me tell you what I'm not going to say. I'm not going to preach a why we don't have 31 flavors sermon. Let me explain what I mean. When I was in high school, my favorite ice cream shop was called Oberweis. And uh, it was kind of a small local chain that was family-owned. The big rival was Baskin-Robbins, which at the time was boasting 31 flavors, and that was their pitch. And when you went into Oberweis, they had a sign, Dear Customers, Why We Don't Have 31 Flavors. And they talked about how they made all their ice cream in-house with the freshest ingredients. And in order to do that and have all the ice cream fresh, they couldn't have 31 flavors. And so I bought into it. I love that vision. That's great. Look down my nose at those Baskin-Robbins. And then a few years later, I came back to Oberweis, and the sign was no longer there. And when you looked up at their flavor list, there was a long list of flavors. I felt cheated. I felt betrayed. Because here was the problem. They had presented something as an ideological conviction that was actually just their preferred way of doing something at that time. They'd overstated their case because they wanted to sell me something. And I'm very sensitive to doing the same thing in this sermon. I don't want to equate what we're suggesting as elders for the 2020 vision as if it's biblical conviction. I don't want to overstate the case for the sake of convincing people to get behind it. The vision the elders are bringing to you is not the right way to do things. It's not birthed from 
ideological purity. It's not this way and no other way. The Bible is very clear about what we need to be about, a ch- what we need to be about as a church. The 2020 vision we present is just one way of fleshing that out. But there are all sorts of other ways it could have worked out. And along the way, we as elders were convinced other ways might be the right way. We've discussed amongst ourselves different ways. The expansion team had the same kind of disagreements about the best way forward. And the reality is if the expansion team had come back with a very different direction, I'd probably be presenting to you a very different vision. Now, I don't want to say that to mean that we are half-hearted as elders or as an expansion team in our position that it's the right way to go for our church. Every one of the elders and every member of the expansion team believes this is the right way forward, but my sermon is not going to be a why we don't have 31 flavors sort of pitch. I'm not going to present the vision as if supporting it is tantamount to obeying the Bible and not supporting it is tantamount to lacking faith in God. So that's what I'm not going to do. So what am I going to do? What will this sermon be about? Well, it's not going to be a sermon. It's going to be three sermons. I'm not joking. I hope you packed a snack. I'm joking about the snack. I'm obviously not going to preach three full-length sermons, but I do have three distinct messages, and so I'm going to have kind of three sermons that are just going to be short and direct, each one. And I think that's important because as I was just wrestling with what pastorally should I be, how should I be leading the church from God's Word, there were several things that were on my heart, and I was conflicted about where do I land, where do we emphasize, but I, I think there are certain things that God wants us to have in our mind to shape how we think about this next week. So I think each, each independent sermon, so to speak, is foundational to our thinking. So let me start with sermon number one. This one's titled, The Job of the Pastor. The Job of the Pastor. And for this one, we take as our text 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Again, page 992 if you're using the Pew Bible, page 992. 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 to 16. This is what Paul tells Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders lay their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That passage is pretty clear. Did Did you hear what my task is as a pastor? What is it that I'm to devote myself to? to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation, exhortation and teaching in light of that Scripture. I mean, that's it. There, there are other parts, you could say, of the job. As the passage points out, I need to be growing as a man of God. 
If you look in Acts and 1 Peter, elders are called to shepherd the flock. Ephesians talks about how pastor teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But those other aspects are just an overflow of the ministry of the word that I am charged by God to devote myself to. At the most foundational level, the pastor's task is to exhort and teach in light of God's word. Let me put it like this. My job is simply to be a herald of what God has already said. I don't have anything new to say. My job is just to help us see what God has said and then orient our lives around it. As we like to say in our church, Christ is the head of the church and He rules His church through His Word. So my task as a pastor is simply to follow that head, Jesus, by being a Word man. Now there are two implications of this. The first implication relates to this sermon or these three sermons. My task today cannot be to pitch the 2020 vision to you. My task must be to allow the Bible to shape and guide us as we go through the process. So that's part of why the sermon isn't a, why we don't have 31 flavors sermon. I'm not a pitch man. I'm a word man. But the implications are bigger than just this sermon. They relate to, my, relate to my task over the next five years. I'll be blunt. Raising $7.7 million is a massive undertaking. If we approve this motion, it could be, it could be very easy for fundraising to suck me in and steal my focus. So I want to be clear, God has not charged me with raising money. He's charged me to devote myself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He's charged me with equipping. He's charged me with shepherding. I'm not a fundraiser. I'm a word man. Over the next five years of this campaign, I want to pastor this church. I want us building loving relationships that are centered on the Word of God and prayer. I want us making more and more followers of Jesus, making each other grow more and more like Jesus and reflecting Him in all His care and love and mercy to a hurting world. I want to be equipping saints for the work of ministry. God's called me to be a pastor. And that's what I intend to do. You can imagine a, a, a military general who places a lieutenant and a squadron of soldiers at a key checkpoint. And he gives them a clear command. Defend this point at all costs. So the lieutenant and his soldiers sit there for a few days. Nothing's going on, but they notice the land all around them is very fertile soil. And they know that the army is starved for rations. So you think this, this would be a good, a good place to kind of set up a garden and, and cultivate crops to help feed the army. And so they start giving their attention to that instead of what their task is. I know it's a silly illustration, but I hope it makes the point. 
I'm not going to abandon my charge just because something else critical and important is before us. As long as God has me here, and I anticipate that being for a long time, my task, along with our other elders, is to be your pastor. I'm not a pitch man. I'm not a fundraiser. I'm a word man. Just as an aside, that's partly why 10% of the capital campaign and the portion we fund first allows us to keep getting after what we should be getting after right now as a church. While we work hard at raising money for the land, we don't want our focus to just keep us there and prevent us from doing what he's called us to do now. We don't simply want bold faith for the future. We also want bold action in the present. It's not future or present. It can't be. It must be both. So until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching, to exhortation. That's my job. If the 2020 vision passes, or if the vote fails, that's what you'll find me doing over the next five years and beyond. So that's the end of my first sermon, the job of the pastor. I'll make the title of my next sermon a little bit more intriguing. How about Jesus' Prayer or the Capital Campaign? That's sermon number two. Jesus' Prayer or the Capital Campaign. For this, I'll take as my text John 17, verses 20 to 21. It's on page 903, page 903. John 17, page 903, verses 20 and 21. What I'm going to read is an excerpt of the prayer Jesus prayed just before he went to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. Verses 20 and 21 he prays. I do not ask for these, meaning his twelve disciples, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You hear Jesus' prayer? That they may all be one, that prayer proved very foundational for the early church. Consider the book of Galatians, which says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or the book of Ephesians, which says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Or you think of Philippians, which says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear the common thread in all those? One, unity. People who've been transformed by Jesus' gospel share the most profound things in common. I know there are some here this morning who aren't followers of Christ. And you're like, okay, I show up at church and it's a guy pitching a 2020 vision. What's going on with that? I want you to hear in Jesus' prayer, in these passages I've read, there should be something that marks God's people. When you watch us and you see us and you look around the room and you see different races and different social backgrounds and male and female, young and old and Yet there's something that unites us. We've been changed by what Jesus did on the cross. Our broken natures, dead in our sin and rebellion, have been dealt with so that we can be reconciled to our Father, the most important relationship, and we now abide in Him through Christ. We're different. We are all united to Jesus, so we are one body. Now, remember then, my job is to herald God's word. I'm a word man. So in this sermon, I want you to hear this. There's something far more important than a capital campaign. Our loving unity. Why would I bring that up? I think it could be easy for a campaign of this magnitude to create fissures in the congregation. I mean, think about it. Those in favor of the motion could think those who opposed it lacked faith. Or those who oppose it could say, oh, those who support it are just opulent. Maybe there's people in our church who are only able to give the widow's might a small amount, but who can pray and get after leveraging all they are for the sake of God's kingdom. And then there's others who have more means at their disposal. You could see a division forming between haves and have-nots, or the people who give a lot and the people who don't, which I say that in quotes because there's all sorts of ways to give besides financial. When I was talking with uh, some other pastors about uh, trying to get some wisdom about leading this, they said, don't be surprised if, if people leave the church, if the, if the vote goes forward. Because you could see how if, if this is such a big deal and our church votes for it and you're not behind it, you'd be like, oh, I don't believe in what that church is about anymore. Or if the plan is voted down, those who really believed in it or worked hard for it could feel angry or frustrated. I'm not anticipating these things happening. I'm not saying trying to predict the future. What I'm trying to say is we have to guard ourselves against that. We have to be praying and steeping ourselves in what God says. God sits on his throne. He's a good God. 
He loves us. He cares for this church. Regardless of how this all turns out, when he comes back, none of this is going to seem like a very big deal. What will seem like a big deal is that sinners like us are reconciled to God. You know what's a big deal? A human being rose from the dead. He conquered death. He defeated the power of sin and death. You know what's a big deal? We who trust in Jesus get to enjoy God's perfect kingdom forever and ever because of what Jesus did for us. Now, if all that's true, we don't need to let a little thing like a capital campaign derail us. So we're going to pray. I think we're all doing that. We're seeking God. Try to make the best decision we can in light of God's Word. Then vote. And then trust God with the results. And I want you to know, if it fails, the elders are not going to go hang their heads and feel like you rejected us. And if it goes forward, we'll need to continue to trust Him and lean on Him for every penny along the way, as well as for all the other good we're trying to do as a church. We have to have our eyes fixed on Him. But when you do, when you have your eyes on God, it allows you to exhale. Relieve the pressure. It isn't on us. We make the best decision we can. We trust Him with the results. And regardless of what comes, we need to live faithfully, on mission, pedal to the metal, all for the glory of God. And if we do that as a church, God's going to do great things here, regardless whether the motion passes or fails. I think what I'm trying to say is, look, we need to be pursuing unity. That's what Christ cares about most. And the way to do that is to have our eyes fixed on God instead of on the mundane things here. It relieves the pressure and allows us to trust Him, be obedient to Him, and to be able to remain unified no matter what. My heart is that we emerge from the vote next week and if, if it goes forward, the campaign as one body. I want us to emerge more um, from, I want us to emerge from all this more unified than we went into it. Let's let Christ's prayer for us be more important than the outcome of the vote. So as you're praying, pray to that end. Fix your eyes on Christ to that end. Prepare your heart to that end. Let's go into next week's meeting with confidence in God, united as one, and let's come out of the meeting with confidence in God, united as one. So that's Sermon 2. Christ's Prayer or a Capital Campaign. My final sermon is titled, Why This Plan? And to be honest, it's not really a sermon. I've said my job is to be a word man, and uh, there are certain word principles that are guiding this, but I do feel like in a sermon like this, I need to at least give an explanation for why the elders feel this is the best path forward. 
So that's what this third sermon is doing. But it does begin with the Bible because that's where the elders began. So a year ago, I preached a sermon on the 2020 vision, and I put this diagram up. You probably remember it if you were here. Maybe I have to do a dance. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Man, we start seeing come down a love divine. Now the pulpit's dancing in the pulpit. All right. You guys remember that. That's what we need to be about as a church, clearly from the Bible. In the context of loving relationships, though in those loving relationships, we're praying for each other and we're looking into the Word of God together. As a result, there's growth that happens. We become more like Jesus. We have hearts that, that want to reflect Jesus to the world. We have hearts that want to um, introduce others to the good news of Jesus. They can taste the goodness of the forgiveness he offers. We have hearts that want to show mercy to those who are in need and help those in need around us. And then together we are trying to help other churches like that to get strengthened or established both globally and locally. That's, that's what we're about as a church. That's the biblical foundation. So you'll remember that. And then last November, our elders asked the church to approve six more biblical foundations that were particular to thinking about how we move forward. So we talked about prioritizing people, that we don't want this to be about facilities or anything else, but besides, we really want to help people grow in their relationship with God. Secondly, God's kingdom over MABC's kingdom, that we want to prioritize serving God's kingdom over our own petty little... Um, territory. Sacrificial investment. We want to challenge our people, and I think this is important, to step out in faith to serve and to give sacrificially for the cause of Christ. Not just we want to raise a lot of money, but actually just we realize as a church it'd be easy to just be comfortable and coast, so we want to press us to be all in for the gospel. Fourth, gospel unity amidst diversity, saying we don't want to, you know, break off into little, little groups of the same age, same gender, same uh, race, whatever it be. But we all want to emphasize that we're unified here as the body of Christ. Fifth, long-sighted, not short-sighted. Um, we don't want to just put a patch on things. We want to be thinking, what's the best long-term solution? And then lastly, spirit-led consensus. Now, I say all that. Obviously, I can't cover all that like we did at the meeting back then, but to say these are the biblical foundations that we think are clear, and from that we're thinking, how do we best get after those things? So, why did we think these things were the best? Let me, let me first talk about kind of the short-term approach of going with an overflow in the gym that we can set up to accommodate more people as opposed to two services. I want to explain why not two services first. Um, as elders, we feel like one of the really special and distinct things about our church is just the depth of warm relationships that are being formed. Obviously, in uh, a diagram like this, in the last three weeks on friendship, it's, we're not saying, hey, we've arrived at that. Friendships need to continue to go deeper. But there is something really unique and special about the bond that's being formed here. And a, and a part of that is what happens on Sunday morning before and especially after the service, where people are just getting to know each other, talking and uh, praying together, asking questions about each other's lives. That's an important time. 
In order to go to two services, you'd either have to put them at really odd times, really early and really late, which we don't think is what we want to be getting after here, or you just, with our parking situation, you have to hustle people in and out, and you'd be changing that fiber of our church that we think is a really important part of who we are. So that's why we're thinking not two services, but an overflow. The expansion team also just talked about the demands that are placed on volunteers and staff to you know, basically double what we're doing here um, when there's a simpler solution as an overflow. So that's why we're going with the overflow. But what about the long-term solution? Overflow is not the long-term solution to space issues. Nor does it leverage us to think bigger than Maple Avenue and plan ways to establish more gospel outposts and establish and strengthen other churches. It's just kind of a short-term solution. So as the expansion team did their work and looked at kind of bigger picture, long-term solutions, they found a lot of the things that we thought were potentials could simply be crossed off. They didn't work. So you might know that the, the building, uh, formerly known as Nashville no North, was one we looked at, and they found there's significant risk there, and it actually didn't solve many of the issues that we face here. They looked at expanding here, but they found out that we are grandfathered in on all sorts of things with the city that would make it really, really hard if we make any sort of changes to expand the number we can hold. It triggers all sorts of things. Most significantly, our parking ratios. We're okay in parking because we have the high school and we have some area businesses and we have the park down there. We can kind of accommodate the parking. But in terms of code, we're way, way, way out of code. And it's pretty much impossible to be able to acquire enough parking that we own and change the zoning and all that to be able to get approval for just even really just the size we are right now, let alone any sort of expansion. So even minor renovations just, we're, this is what we got, nothing more. And then they also thought of some more uh, rural properties, um, but you might be aware, but there's a, there, there's a corridor they've corned off, is that the right way to say that? They've marked off because they're eventually going to be putting a highway in through here um, or through the rural areas around here. And the government's not in a big hurry to say exactly where that highway is going to go. And until it is, it's a huge risk to invest in that land, and you have no idea when the government will eventually make their decision. So it just ties up a lot of the inexpensive land. I say inexpensive relatively. So it was deemed too big of a risk. So the expansion team began exploring a way to secure a smaller building. Maybe, maybe we could get a smaller building and a portion of our church kind of just become two sister churches. We could move a portion of our congregation into that, that building and we could be in, you know, the rest could stay here and do something like that. But again, um, the different options that were there posed all sorts of risks and it wasn't it wasn't, uh, we couldn't just presume, we just say, oh, half the church go over to this building and everyone would. Like, it's, it's a very complicated scenario. Um, the buildings we looked at didn't seem like they would really be viable to that end. Let me say it like this. Without trying to speak for God, it seemed that there were lots of doors we thought would be open that were being firmly closed shut. And at the same time that was happening, another door opened up in very clear ways. 
you might be aware of the new 20,000-person development that's going on in southwest, uh, southwest, am I pointing the right direction? I don't know. Somewhere southwest. Um, well, uh, part of Georgetown. And there's only a few parcels in that entire area that are even zoned to accommodate a church. But the main developer in that area appears willing to sell a plot of land on the best corner of that development, 8th line and 10th side road, right across from the Gallard, across from the community center, or the uh, fire station there. And though it is a steep price for that land, it's a fair value for service land in such a prime location. But here's the thing. If we don't purchase it now, it's highly unlikely that prime land could ever be secured for a church again. We say yes to securing the land now, or, of course, only God knows the future, but as best as we can tell, it's forever a no. You think about the way regulations are going in Canada against churches, against Christianity, uh, against tax-exempt places, you know, revenue, all this, and even just development. You know, it's hard to get commercial place and convert it back to a church. I want to say how exactly we'll use that land to build a building is not clear right now. There's different opinions. Once the land is secured and paid off, which could take anywhere between five and ten years, maybe more, I think that's probably a good window, then we as a church will have discussions about how best to build. For example, this is something the expansion team was really excited about. We could choose to build a similar-sized building as Maple Avenue on that plot, although you'd make it with a way where it could expand, but build a similar-sized building and do that two-sisters approach, where part would go down there, or two-sister churches approach. Part would go down there and part would stay here. So those who read the original proposal were like, why is it the same size as our current congregation? I was asked that. I didn't give the right answer. The answer is because that was from the expansion team saying, we want to have two sister churches in Georgetown, but it had, you could also build much bigger there. Another option would be to move in mass to that location. And in that case, you'd build the auditorium twice as big as it is here. And then plant a new church back here. So send out a small group kind of plant a new church here. Or we could move to that building and gift this building to a, another like-minded church or maybe even sell it at a discount to a like-minded church. I, I'm not saying that it would only be limited to these possibilities. My point is to say we don't know right now what's going to be best for the church then. And so we don't need to decide that. We have a decision we need to make now. It'd be foolish for us to try to decide what would be, best, what would be the best way forward five to ten years from now when that church will be ready to be built. But it would also likewise, I think, be foolish to pass on this once-in-a-century opportunity to secure land for God's kingdom. Uh, one of the elders wrote me this, and I want to just read it to you. He wrote, After processing the sticker shock, the idea of buying a $7 million piece of land with the possibility of building a $9 million building on it seem to make sense in light of the fact that this opportunity is once in a generation. Looking back on this from a perspective of 50 years from now, God willing, it will seem like it was a great idea. Further, Canada, and particularly the GTA, is becoming increasingly non-Christian. Both secularization and other religions are gaining ground. 
having another gospel outpost in the GTA is a very good thing. So it just gives you a sense of kind of how the elders have processed through that. I also want to add it's a safe investment. Many of the other ex- ideas we explored, I think, were higher risk. And those lands, because of that, might have come cheaper. But it, if something went hay- haywire, we would have saddled the future church with a crippling yoke. But this investment is such that if something catastrophic did happen, our future church would still be in a stable place because the land is likely to retain its value or even appreciate. But the bottom line, I think, is that this is the only chance we'll have to say yes to securing what we believe is a strategic gospel outpost for reaching both Georgetown but even a broader area of the GTA. In our eyes, we feel God has opened a door that we should walk through. I want to share a little bit of my own heart in that. When I first heard this idea and I read the original expansion team's report, it scared me. I mean, a lot of it made sense, but it scared me. For the reasons I talked about at the beginning, because I want to pastor this church I want to give my time and my energy to helping us as a church get after making disciples here, pointing people to Jesus here, helping people grow. As I said, I want to be a word man, not a pitch man, not a fundraiser. And I was worried that if we launched a campaign to build in South Georgetown, that future vision would be all we'd live for. It'd be like a cloud that hang over us. could be positively or it could be negatively, but nonetheless it would dominate the church life for 10 or 15 years. I wrote in my notes 5 or 10 years. So maybe it's 10 or 15, maybe it's 5 or 10. But that's what scared me. I was worried that our budget would be so crunched that it would be difficult to get after some of the critical gospel priorities in the present. So I had a lot of praying and thinking to do. Because at the same time, it made so much sense, right? But the elders and expansion team did not vote unanimously to launch a campaign to buy land in South Georgetown. It's not just bold faith for the future that had our vote. The 2020 vision also importantly includes bold action in the present. 10% of what we raise is going toward allowing us to be obedient to God's call in the present, planting churches now, training up future leaders now, making capital improvements on the building that we serve in and where we are experiencing life now. And because of that, I feel like we're we're carving out an area to say we're not just going to be dominated by the future. First and foremost, let's take care of what we need to for the present. I do want to address three specific questions the elders wrestled with, because I think these are important. Maybe you're wrestling with some of the same things. First, I get how this plan is addressing our priorities, but is it the most cost-effective way of doing it? And the answer is, frankly, it's not. It's not the most cost-effective way. But from our perspective, it's clearly the best way. So we've felt 
like we should recommend doing the harder but better thing. Second, is it unwise or even ungodly to spend so much money on, quote, ourselves when we could be giving that money towards missions? Again, this is an important question that you wrestle with when you're talking about dollar amounts that high. I think it's ultimately unwise to pit giving to missions against giving to a capital campaign as if it's a zero-sum game. You have $7 million to spend over the next few years. How are you going to spend it? When a church's heart is focused outward, not on itself, not consumed with its own name, giving to a capital campaign ultimately is going to enable a much bigger global impact on missions. Third, we knew that there are some in our church, maybe many in our church, that don't have a lot of discretionary income. Would this campaign just lead to five years of many in our church feeling guilty that they can't give enough? To that I'd say, I don't want this, what I don't want you doing is sitting with a calculator and thinking, okay, $7 million divided by this many people means each person needs to increase their giving this much, and that means if I'm going to vote yes for this, I need to increase my giving that much. That's not how we need to be thinking. First of all, it's way too oriented towards just the dollar amount. This, This vision is about something much bigger. It's about us being beyond ourselves, pedal to the metal, all in for the gospel. So, Wherever you're at financially, doesn't matter. What we're, what we're asking you to think about is, can I say that I'm willing to just live sacrificially for the sake of Christ? To push myself further in that direction. To push myself out of my comfort zone. For some, that means just crying out to God in prayer a lot more. You have fixed income, but you can do that. Or serving more, stepping up and serving in an area that's going to save the church money because you're able to give some of your time to do this or do that. Maybe it means just, I'm going to invest in reaching people with the cause of Christ because that's what this is all about. So it's not about a dollar amount. So one person might be able to give a very small amount. Another person might be able to give a very large amount. As long as we're all sacrificially giving ourselves, we can trust God with the results. And I'm confident that if we as a church are willing to say that, I'm going to be crying out, dependent on you, and giving all I can to your purposes, God's going to take care of it. So you don't need to try and figure out your ratio. That's just the wrong way of thinking. I want to say this before I close this third sermon. Um, Again, for you who are newer to our church, Maybe you're an outsider, you're not a follower of Christ, and you're here for some reason. It could be a little... Um, you come in, you're like, a church? That's a, that's a big dollar amount. Maybe you even feel like, oh, a pastor's just pitching me for money. Again, I hope I've made clear that's not what I'm doing. Maybe I'm a little self-conscious about that. That's so repugnant to me. But I want to say to you, the fact that our church is considering something like this is because we really believe the good news of Jesus. And we want people to know him. And we want to do whatever we can, giving sacrificially of our finances, but also giving in all sorts of other ways, 
of our lives so people can know Jesus. That's just how... Don't think of it as a price tag on that, but that gives you a sense of how important that is to us. It's not about a building or a name for ourselves. It's about how can we best get the good news of Jesus out there. So the goal of this third sermon is to help you understand the elders' thinking. Not to manipulate you into voting with us. Just wanted you to know why we arrived where we arrived. We've been much in prayer, and we're trusting God's Spirit to lead this vote. And we'll trust Him with the outcome of the vote, whatever it is. So that brings to a close the third sermon, Why This Plan. I want to say I'm so glad that the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is before us this morning because I one worry with a sermon like this is that it could cause us to lose sight of what really matters. That Christ has saved us from our sin. That's what unites us, not some 2020 vision. This table is what unites us. So let's partake of it together. Father, as we prepare to take of the bread and the cup to remember what Jesus did for us, may you use this to remind us where our gaze needs to be, what needs to dominate our hearts and minds. And may, as we take it, it be a demonstration of the unity you have brought to us through your body on the cross. Pray in Jesus' name.